I want to conclude this series of sermons today that, um, that we've been in. This is part uh, 937 of a series of sermons. <laughs> we've been on call. God didn't say that. We've been in this series as long as I can remember. Um, but I want to read a few verses today starting in Luke chapter 12, beginning at verse number 46. Luke 12, verse 46. I'm reading from the New King James rendering of the word of God. <laughs> Hear ye the word of the Lord. <laughs> it says, now so it was that after three days they found him, him being Jesus, in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening and asking them questions. And all who heard him were astonished at his understanding and answers. So when they saw him, they were amazed. And his mother said to him, son, why have you done this to us? Look, your father and I have sought you anxiously. And he said to them, why do you seek me? Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? I want to stop the reading of scripture right there and talk from this subject for today's sermon, Standing on Business. Standing, standing on, on business. For those of you that are unaware, your pastor or whatever I am to you is, has a fanatical type of fondness for the game of basketball. For the majority of my life, I've watched it. And for a significant part of my life, I actually played it. I loved it so fanatically that when I didn't have a ball, I put a clothes hanger in the form of a circle on the top of a door and played with a sock. I, I loved it so much that I would take, some of y'all too young for this, an empty milk crate. Cut out the bottom of the milk crate. Nail the milk crate to a tree. And create a goal. I, I love the game of basketball. Loved it so much that I played it beginning at the age of 10 in something called peewee. Then played in junior high then played junior varsity, then played varsity, and then played all four years at Millsaps College. I loved the game of basketball. And as is the case with many people who played basketball, I not only liked the game, but I tried to play the game like players that I liked. And there are a number of players that played during the era that I grew up in that were worth emulating and admiring. But there is one player that stood out head and shoulders above the rest. You may have your opinion and perspective, but I got the mic today. And I'm telling my testimony. And based on my observation, the greatest player of all time is the only player to go 6-0 and in the NBA Finals. The only player to three-peat twice. The only player to win three times, take a couple of years off, come back and win three more times. He hails from North Carolina. 6-6 shooting guard. The one and the only Michael Jeffrey Jordan. That's my goal. I loved Mike. I studied Mike. I learned how to walk like Mike. I learned how to run like Mike. I learned how to hold my shorts like Mike. I learned how to shoot free throws like Mike. I learned how to chew gum like Mike. I'm going to see if I got any real basketball fans here. I even learned how to stick my tongue out. 
like Mike. I knew how to do everything like Mike except play <laughs> like Mike. I was the Michael Jordan walking, chewing gum, tongue sticking out in the most individual on the court that played nothing like him. And there are a number of different reasons that I could not play like Mike. I didn't have that God-given talent. I didn't have that God-given athleticism. You can't teach 6'6". But there is one reason that I want to lift up that is pertinent to what I'm preaching about today and relevant for today's revelation is this. One of the reasons I couldn't play like Mike is simply this. I was trying to do what Mike did on the court without doing what Mike did off the court. Where is my witness? Yeah. In other words, I was trying to do what Mike was doing publicly without doing what Mike was doing privately. I wanted Mike's rings, but I didn't want Mike's work ethic. I wanted his accomplishments, but not his attributes. I was operating in ignorance of a biblical principle that is communicated by our carpenter and our Christ named Jesus when he said to whomsoever much is given much will be required you can't cheat the process you cannot ignore biblical principles when you bake, break the principles the principles break you did you hear what I just said God doesn't want us to break the principles because when we break the principles, the principles break us. And there's a principle called sowing and reaping. It's the law of investment. You get in, you get out what you put in. Come on here. Be not deceived. God is not mocked. You can't mock the process. You can't cheat the principle. Whatsoever a man or woman sows, that shall he also reap. I wanted to do what he did in public without doing what he did in private. And isn't that just like us? People want your glory, but not your story. Did you hear what I just said? They want your progress, but not your pain. They want your money, but not your misery. Y'all aren't talking to me today. Yep, yep, they want to be where you are without going through what you went through. I heard one preacher say this years ago with something that never left me. He said a, a young preacher walked up to him one time and said, Pastor, I want your anointing. Can you pray for me to have your anointing? He said, sure, I pray that you abandon at five. I pray that you never discover who your daddy is. I pray that your first wife leave you. Y'all not talking to me. I pray that you have a child born with an impediment. I pray that people that you try to help the most hurt you the most. He said, Pastor, why are you praying for that? You asked for my anointing. You can't get my anointing without getting my adversity. You can't get this glory without having this story. I wanted Mike's results, but not his work ethic. And I noticed something. I, I saw how this analogy has exegetical exegesis to draw out, to draw out of scripture, to draw meaning out of scripture, to take a document that's written thousands of years ago and to stare at it and to look at it and to question it and to draw out of a document that was written thousands of years ago and find meaning for us in our current contemporary context as I reflected on this experience and how I might draw some meaning out of this experience I realized that the same thing that we do or that I try to do in the game of basketball is the same thing that we try to do in the game of life because life has a goat and he's not from North Carolina he's from Nazareth King of kings, Lord of lords, Rose of Sharon, Lily of the Valley, Bright and Morning Star, Lawyer in a courtroom, 
doctor in a sick room, the wheel in the middle of a wheel, my bridge over trouble, my help in ages past, my hope for years to come. I'm talking about a man named Jesus. I'm talking about a man who lived 33 years, who was unfairly punished, unjustly convicted, unrighteously sentenced to Roman capital punishment. I'm talking about the Jesus that carried the cross down the Via Della Rosa, up Golgotha's hill. I'm talking about the Jesus that hung there from the sixth to the ninth hour, hung his head, then he died. I'm talking about the Jesus who was buried in Joseph of Arimathea's tomb, who stayed there all night Friday, who stayed there all day Saturday, who stayed there all night Saturday night, but early Sunday morning, got up out of the grave. He didn't just get up so that he could get up. He got up to show you that you could get up. I don't know what's been burying you, and I don't know how long you've been buried, but I got two words for you today. If you'll receive them with prophetic implications, get up. Resurrection level resilience is on the inside of you. They lied on you, get up. They talked about you, get up. You lost some things, get up. You're dealing with grief during the holidays. God is able to get you up. Jesus, listen to me, died, Marlon, to be our savior. You got to get this, but he lived to be your example. Did you catch that? You, you, you have to catch that. That is the, that, 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 that's a part of the good news that, that we cannot de-emphasize. He died to be my savior, but he lived to be my example. He said, let me live. Why 33? It didn't take three. It didn't take 33 years to do it. But he lived 33 years to show you what's possible. <laughs> when you live a life that is guided and governed by the king. See, when the only thing we focus on is Jesus' death, then you have a Christianity that teaches you how to die. <laughs> you have a Christianity with an obsession with eschatology. That's the end times. And I'm not saying that's not important. I am saying that it's not incorrect. I am saying if that's all you focus on, it's incomplete. He didn't just, he, he didn't just come to show you how to die. He came to show you how to live. So he had, he had, come on now, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. He had four different people tell his life story from four different perspectives so that you would know how to live. If the only thing that was important was his death, then the Gospels would have said he died. But the Holy Spirit had Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John tell his life story from four different perspectives to show you and me how to live. He lived to show you what to do with a Judas. Did you hear what I just said? He said, the way I handle my Judas is the way you handle your Judas. Did you see how he handled his Judas? Once he got a revelation that Judas was going to betray him, notice what he does. He looks at Judas and says, whatever you're going to do, do it quickly. In other words, he's saying, I realize that my generosity will never change your character. Y'all aren't talking to me on this side. He said, I have got to the point where I realize that no matter what I give you, no matter how good I am to you, that who I am will not change who you are. So I'm going to stop trying to make you somebody that you made a decision you don't want to be. But I got enough faith 
to realize and recognize that my welfare and my well-being is not in your hands. So I'm not going to try to talk you out of doing it. I'm going to tell you, go ahead on and get it out the way. Because the sooner you put me in the grave. The sooner God is going to get me out. Y'all didn't hear what I just said. They can put you in there, but they can't keep you in there. When God gets ready to get you out. Jesus is the goat. Why would I want to play the game of life without learning from him? Why wouldn't I want to radically immerse myself in seeing how he lived and live my life that way? But here's the challenge. This is a Christian conundrum. And it's this. Very often, like I did with Mike, we can try to do what he did in public. without doing what he did in private. Now, a powerful picture of this is seen in the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew tells this story from his perspective, how uh, Jesus was with the disciples at one point, and he got done teaching, told disciples, get on the boat, y'all go to the other side. And the Bible says he leaves and goes in one direction. They get on the boat, and they get in the sea. They go in the other direction. And the Bible says it's about the fourth uh, watch of the night. And Jesus went to them walking on the sea. And the Bible says that as he's walking on the sea, the people see him and they get afraid. They think it's a ghost. And then Jesus is like, no, it's not a ghost. It's me. And Peter says, Lord, if it's you, see, I don't have time. I don't have time, but I love me some Peter. Woo, I can relate to some Peter. There are 12 people on the boat. And out of all the 12, Peter is the one that has enough. See, y'all not talking to me here. See, see, I believe this is one of the reasons Jesus picked him. He picked him because he uses Peter-like personalities. Did you hear what I just said? He uses those Peter-like personalities. Peter said, if it's you, be it me to come on the water. Jesus said, come. That's all Peter needed. Y'all missed it. Y'all missed it. All Jesus said was come. He did not say come and I'm going to suspend gravity. He did not say come and I'm going to make the water like a road. He said come. All Peter needs is a come. Some people stay in the boat because you need more than a come. You need, a, you need directions. You need a commentary. You need explanation. Peter says all you need to give me is the green light. And once I got the green light, I'm out of here. He, he said, come. And the text says, Peter starts walking on the water. And as long as he kept his eyes on Jesus. Watch this. But the text says, verse 30, when he saw that the wind was boisterous, he got afraid and beginning to sink. The wind didn't sink him. Y'all not with me today. The text didn't say the wind sank him. Fear did. He saw the wind. Y'all missed it. He saw the wind. So as long as he kept his eyes on Jesus, he was walking on what other people drowned in. But then he saw the wind. Which means he didn't lose vision. He lost focus. And the reason some of us are sinking is not because you don't have a vision. You're sinking because you don't have focus. Focus is selective attention. It means you make a decision what you're not going to look at. When you go to the optometrist and they check your eyes and they show you five lines of letters to read 
and they tell you to read line four. They're also telling you not to look at lines one through three. You're making a conscious decision what you're not going to look at. And Peter's problem was that he looked at, the text says, when he saw the wind was what? You can't really see wind. But he looked at how the wind was affecting everything else and made assumptions that it would affect him the same way. Did you hear what I just said? He looked at what the wind was doing to the water and thought that the wind would do that to him. He looked at what the wind was doing to the boat and thought that the wind would do that to him. Not knowing that when God gives you a word, he makes you windproof. That just because everything else is being blown around doesn't mean you're going to be blown around. Just because it's happening to everybody around you doesn't mean it's going to happen to you. God specializes in Passover blessings. The feast of Passover was in commemoration of a Passover blessing. That when everything was happening in Egypt, down that row and down that street, God told Moses, tell the people to take the blood from a lamb. Put the blood from the lamb on the doorpost. And when I see the blood, I'm going to pass over that house. It may hit every other house on the road, but when it gets to a house that's covered in the blood, I'm going to pass over that house. Peter begins to sink, and it was fear that sank him, not the wind. So why, here's the issue. Peter saw his goat doing something in public. I don't have time, I don't have time, I don't have time. It's the principle of exposure. Exposure awakens in you an appetite for something you didn't previously have an appetite for until you got exposed to it. Did you hear what I just said? He uses exposure to create inspiration in you to do something you didn't know was possible until he puts you in the proximity of somebody doing it. He'd been on water his whole life as a fisherman. He never tried to walk on water until he got in the proximity of somebody that showed him walking on water was possible. Ah. Now, when we don't understand how God uses exposure, the enemy will pervert exposure and he will have you become jealous of what you're supposed to be inspired by. I got to go. Jealousy is mismanaged exposure. And if some people will stop hating on you, they can learn from you. Let me go to this side. If some people will stop being intimidated, they could see what's possible. Here's my point. He, he, uh, here's my point. He tries to do what Jesus did in public without doing what Jesus did in private. He tried to do what Jesus did in verse 25 without doing what Jesus did in verse 23. Pastor, what did Jesus do in verse 23? Verse 23 says, and when he had sent the multitudes away, he went up to the mountain by himself to pray. So in verse 23, he praying. He was exposed to the same wind Peter was exposed to. But because he was prayed up, the wind didn't create fear. Y'all missed it. See, sometimes you're blaming the wind when it's not the wind, but your interpretation of the wind and your assumption of what the wind means. Jesus was exposed to the same wind, but because he was prayed up, his heart was insulated from fear. Peter tried to do what Jesus did in public without doing what he did in private. And that's the Christian conundrum. That's the challenge for many Christians. We're trying to do 
what Jesus did in public. We're trying to do verse 25, love your enemies. You can't do that without verse 23. If any man will follow me, he must deny himself. Take up his cross and follow me. That's verse 25. You can't do that without verse 23. Bless them that persecute you. Pray for them that despitefully misuse you. That's verse 25. You can't do that out verse 23 whosoever wants to save his life must lose it whoever loses his life will save it that's verse 25 we can't do that without verse 23 we're trying to do what he did without doing what he did And so as we prepare to go into the last month of a year, I think it's imperative and it's important for us to understand the significance of not just trying to engage in the activity that Jesus engaged in, but to adopt some of the attributes that Jesus modeled for us. And there are a number of attributes that we should and could explore, but as we close out this God didn't say that series. There's one that hit my heart this week so heavy that sometimes I have a word. This week, I felt a burden. Did you hear what I said? This burden is why I'm here today. I was thinking about taking this day off. But the burden... I, I, won't, I, won't, ooh, I won't even bother that. The burden will get you out of bed. The, a burden will make you change your plans. A burden will make you make adjustments. I, I, I felt a burden to talk about this attribute that I think is extremely important but often overlooked. Is it an underemphasized attribute that Jesus models for you and I? It is an attribute that is a prerequisite to possessing all of God's promises. And it is an attribute called assertiveness. Look at pastor, this is your season. You better hear me. See, you better hear me. Thank you, you better hear me. This is your season for assertiveness. Did you hear what I just said? And this is, this is one of the character traits of Jesus, unfortunately, that many people underemphasize or unaware of because we confuse Jesus' humility with passivity. Jesus was humble, but he wasn't passive. Did you hear what I just said? He wasn't passionate. He's actually passionate. Right, right. Come on, during Lent, what do we explore during Lent? We explore the passion of Christ. He wasn't passive. He was assertive. So the Jesus that we've curated in our head may be a passive Jesus, but if you take the Jesus that we've curated in our head and we proof text that Jesus with the Jesus in the Bible, then the Jesus of the Bible calls into question this curation of Jesus that we have in our head because the Jesus of the Bible says stuff like this. Y'all not ready for this. Jesus of the Bible says stuff like this. In Matthew chapter 6, verse number 5, Jesus of the Bible engaged in corrective teaching. I'm about to show y'all something here that that you can't do if you passive. Jesus is teaching his disciples to pray and he says, and when you pray, don't be like the hypocrites. See that? You see how quiet it got right there? See, because that debunks some of our view of Jesus. He said, when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites. It got a little quiet at the 1030 when I, when I hit this part. I'm going to see if the 1230, see if y'all respond a little better. It says, for they love to pray standing in synagogues. And on the corners of streets that they may be seen by men they're praying to be impressive 
not praying to be heard. And here's what's scary. Jesus said, assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. What's their reward? What they really wanted. They wanted to be seen. That's what they get. But their prayer doesn't get answered. That's their reward. They want it to be presented as spiritual, so that's what they get. But let me break this down. I'm going to see if I can get at least 17 amens right here. I'm going to see if I, I believe I'm believing for 37. Here it is. Let's simplify this down to its common denominator. You have a religious leader, a rabbi, Jesus. They're all Jewish, right? Who's telling other up-and-coming religious leaders about the spiritual discipline of prayer. Would you agree? All right. And he is using other religious leaders that are in the same faith as an example of what not to be like. That was, that was 33 amens. I was believing for 37. Just, just bring it down to his lowest common denominator. That's what happened. It's like Jesus saying, I knew you grew up. I know you grew up in the synagogue and you've seen them doing this. And I know you like it. But don't do it. Because everything we like, God don't. See? <laughs> That's not passive. Corrective teaching. He also engaged in cleansing the temple. Come remember, there's exploitation going on in the temple. Y'all follow me? So when people would come to the temple to offer sacrifice, let's say if they came from a far distance, they couldn't bring a sacrifice. So they would have to buy a sacrifice at the temple. So what people were doing was, who were selling the sacrifices, they were price gouging. They know you got to have a sacrifice and you didn't bring a lamb with you from home. So the only way you're going to get one is you get one from here. So I'm going to raise the price and exploit you. And when Jesus saw that, he went into the temple, don't sanitize the text, and turn them tables over. Now let me ask y'all something. How do you think he turned them over? Excuse me. Excuse me. Definitely not. And said, it is written that my father's house should be a house of prayer, but you have made it into something. A den of thieves that my father never intended. You like it, he don't, and you don't even know it. He said, y'all packed in here and he don't like it. I could take you to the Old Testament and show you Malachi when he told the people, he said, I wish y'all would shut the doors of the temple. He said, I don't, he said, I'm not even receiving that, what you're offering me. He says, you lighten the fires of the coals for that sacrifice. He said, you doing it. He said, you bringing me, Malachi 1. He said, if I'm your father, where's my honor? He said, you bringing me the, the lame and the blind as a sacrifice. So what they would do is they would take the best calf, they'd take that to the market and get money for it. The calf that had two legs, that's the one they would sacrifice. The lamb that's blind that's running into every other lamb, they taking that lamb and bringing that to Jesus, to God. God's like, I wish you wouldn't even bring that. He says, would you do that to your governor? He said, you bringing me what's left, not what's right. And you think I got to accept it when only the desperate don't have a standard. A standard means there are certain things you don't accept. I'm done, Tario. Here it is. That's not passive. Corrective teaching, not passive. Cleansing the temple, not passive. Jesus had a history of confronting troublemakers. In, watch this. In John chapter number 13, 
When Jesus had said these things, verse 21, it says, he was troubled in spirit and testified. Most assuredly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Then the disciples looked at one another, perplexed about whom he spoke. Now there was one leaning on Jesus' bosom, one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. Simon Peter therefore mentioned to him, watch this, to ask him who he talking about. So this is John. John writes about himself in a very flattering way, <laughs> right? It's just like John, just say your name, the one whom Jesus loved. <laughs> no, really, that's the way John <laughs> John's like, John, calm down. Like, so... So it says, ask him who he's talking about. So here it is. Let's, let's, let's contemporize this. You had friends giving. It's 12 of you at the table. You hosting. You say, somebody around here going to betray me. And somebody say, Who? Now, in our current contemporary Christianity, we would say something like, I'm not going to say. <laughs> not Jesus. Jesus answered, it is he to whom I shall give a piece of bread when I have dipped it. They said, who is going to do it? Say, when I put this, this tortilla in this spinach dip, whoever I give it to, that's the person. Nothing, pa nothing passive about that. He's not passive. God didn't say being pious means being passive. Possessing any promise of God requires assertiveness. Liberation requires assertiveness. If I'm going to be free, i got to be assertive. Power doesn't concede without a demand. That's why God told, Pharaoh, told Moses to tell Pharaoh, let my people go. He didn't tell Moses to ask Pharaoh. Because you can't negotiate with that which is holding you hostage. Some of you playing with bondage and flirting with bondage and playing footsie with bondage. The devil is a liar. There's no elevation without assertiveness. If anything's going to get better, I got to try to make it better. Somebody say these words. I'm done, Tario. Fix it. Fix it. You know, I, I don't have time. You know the Holy Spirit is the pneuma Christos. Christ is not Jesus' last name. Christ means anointed one. So the pneuma Christos is pneuma spirit. It's the spirit of Christ. That's, what Jesus, that's why Jesus told the disciples, I have to leave because I'm here in bodily form, but I'm not in you. So I need to leave so that you can be animated by and with the thing that's enabling me to do what I'm doing and greater works than these you shall do. He said, it's better for you if I go. So the anointed one is on the inside of you and me. And the anointing is a problem solver. It removes burdens. That's a problem. And destroys yokes. That's a problem. So stuff that's broke, we've been anointed to fix. Pass out on. I don't like the state of my relationship. Fix it. But it's not going to happen by magic. It requires assertiveness. Any ground you take requires assertiveness. This is what the battles in the Old Testament is about. God's not condoning violence. He's showing you what is for you sometimes has to be fought for. Even though Canaan land is the promised land, there are giants you have to overthrow. You got to try to take it. You don't get Canaan, peace that passes all understanding, without assertiveness. You don't get joy unspeakable, full of glory, without assertiveness. If I'm making sense, say yes. Liberation and elevation and also collaboration requires assertiveness. You can't be your best self by yourself. 
God didn't create us to be codependent or hyper-independent. Hyper-independence is a trauma response. He created us to be interdependent. There are other people that are rich where you're poor. And you got to be assertive about connecting with the right people. That's some of our problem. You have no relational standards, so you have no relational filter. So you want anybody that wants you. Jesus picked his team. And he didn't accept everybody that showed interest. Some people he vetted and they didn't even know they were being vetted. I want to follow you. Come on. Hold on. I got to go back and bury my dead dad. Let the dead bury the dead. Come on. He's not being insensitive to the father. He sure, I'm sure he would have let him go to the funeral. He's trying to let him know that you can't have a convenient commitment. He's like, I got three years, and I got to squeeze everything I can out of these three years. I can't have time. I can't surround myself with convenient commitment. And that's what some of our relationships look like. They only commit it when it's convenient. But some of the relationships you need you got to be intentional about. And adults aren't good at that because we're wrestling with idolatry of image. I don't want them to think um, But if you read Jesus picking his team, he goes to Peter and says, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. Peter didn't ask to follow him. He asked Peter. And the Bible says immediately they left their nets and followed him. Because the people you need have nets. <laughs> Most of the people Jesus called were busy already. Because the people that can actually add value are already adding value somewhere. It requires assertiveness. And Jesus models this for us. I know some people say, PD, no, 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 no. I'm, I'm assertive. Maybe. Or are you aggressive? I'm done. I'm assertive. No, no, no. I'm aggressive. Assertiveness as a life approach involves confidently pursuing one's own interests, goals, and rights while equally respecting those of others. It embodies a balanced way of living that allows individuals to express their desires and opinions openly and respectfully, make decisions that honor their needs, and set boundaries without infringing on the rights of others. This approach fosters self-respect, effective decision-making, and positive relationships, contributing to fulfilling and a respectful existence. But aggression... It's characterized by a tendency to, conf to confront, to dominate, or to impose one's will on others, often with little to no regard of their feelings or rights. It's manifest in pursuing goals, desires, or interests at the expense of others, using intimidation or force to get one's way, and reacting to challenges or perceived threats with hostility or violence. I'm assertive. That's aggressive. Assertiveness is a balance of lion and lamb. Those are the two traits that describe Jesus. Aggressiveness is wolf. And some people are in a season where you're too much lamb. And others you're in a season where you're too much wolf. And what God's calling you to is lamb and lion. And if you're too much lamb, you're too much lamb out of fear. And if you're too much wolf, you're too much wolf out of fear. Because something happened and made you one. 
and now you think you got to be one. When I'm done, when we're in a season that's similar to what Jesus, I really feel, feel this, the urgency of this. We're in a season that's captured here in the text. The Bible says Jesus is 12 years old. His family's going to Jerusalem for a feast, and they are headed back home. There's a cohort of family, so they're assuming Jesus is in the back with cousins, and they realize after three days he's not with them. So they frantically go back to Jerusalem, and they find him in the temple, 12 years old, asking questions and listening to answers from spiritual leaders. And they go to him, and they say, we've been looking for you. What are you doing? He said, what do you mean what I'm doing? Don't you know? I have to be about my father's business. He said, I'm in a season that, requ I'm, I'm in a season that requires me to stand on business. Here it is, I'm done. We're not in our 12th year literally, but I want you to hear me spiritually. Some of us are in a 12th year season, I am. Where the wolf has gotten you as far as he can take you. And the lamb has gotten you as far as he can take you. This next season requires lion and lamb. It requires assertiveness. So, I don't know who you are. I don't know if you need more relational assertiveness in this season. I don't know if you need more vocational assertiveness in your season. Vocation deals with calling. Occupation, what you're paid for. Vocation, what you're made for. You're really winning when you get paid for what you're made for. Somebody, come on now, somebody say, I receive. So when we say that, that's not just talk. Faith takes personal possession of God's promises. Is that right? Faith looks at what is written in the Bible to all and say, I receive that for me. Maybe you got to be more assertive in that area. Financial assertiveness, spiritual assertiveness. I don't know. But you're in a chapter. Some of us, you're in a year 12 season. Well, you got to be assertive. Because what's for you sometimes has to be fought for. You don't get peace that passes all understanding without a fight. You don't get joy unspeakable full of glory without a fight. You don't get a marriage that honors the Father, that mirrors Christ's relationship with the church, and that satisfies you. See, we got to raise the standard from just staying. Right now, the standard is just staying. It's a pretty low standard. Standard should be satisfaction. Not that that person replaces God, but that person satisfies me in the areas that God ordained that person to satisfy me. You think you're going to get that with a conversation? You think you're going to get that without having to repeat yourself? You think you're going to get that without assertiveness? And here's what the Holy Spirit put on my heart for this service. It's my third time speaking this message. I speak it differently because every crowd's different. But here's what's on my heart for this service. I need to pray against. Now, this thing is not a spirit, but it's caused by a spirit. A spirit of fatigue I heard the Holy Ghost because here's some of your testimony I, I sense it PD I'm tired I tried I feel like it's working and I'm not quitting but if you want me to be honest, I'm so tired. PD, if I can be real with you, I'm tired of believing. 
feel like I've been in faith so long. My faith weak, PD. I'm tired. PD, I'm giving it all I got. I just don't have much left. And here is one of the reasons I know this is satanic influence. Because the apostle Paul said, don't become weary in well-doing. For in due season, listen to me, you will reap if, if you faint not. Simon Peter, I prayed for you that your faith fail not. We're going to go, but I need to, the Holy Spirit dropped that in me for this service. We're going to pray for this spirit of fatigue. Come unto me, all ye who are weary and heavy laden, and you shall find rest for your souls. Father, I pray right now in the name of Jesus for every heart that is filled with fatigue. Your people are tired, worn down. But you said if we wait on you, you'd renew our strength. So I pray for renewal of strength. You said times of refreshing come from the Lord. I pray for that right now in your presence, refreshing over your people. I thank you that you're sending a second wind to revive, to renew, to restore. I thank you for resurrections of hope, of focus, of joy. I thank you for redeeming and reclaiming of dreams and visions that you have put on the inside of your people. And we say over your people, not one of your words that you have spoken over their life will fall to the ground. For your word does not return to you void, but it accomplishes all you send it to do, and it will prosper the thing wherein you send it. So I thank you for rejuvenation. I thank Thank you for resurrection I thank you for replenishment and I thank you for the strength to run on and to see what the end is gonna be we pray this over your people in Jesus name somebody say I receive it clap your hands 1230